Father, as I reflect upon those words, you are Lord God Almighty, my Savior and my King. Father, may that be the truth of our heart. May we recognize that you are Lord, you are God Almighty, and Lord, may we know you as our Savior. Lord, may you speak tonight through your word as we study the nation Israel. As we see where they're at, Father, there's so many parallels that we can draw to our own life. Would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 7 tonight. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. We have been studying in depth for some time now the nation Israel and the people of Israel. And while we are at a specific point in their history, known as the period of Judges, the book of Judges, I thought it would be relevant tonight to just kind of backtrack a little bit and take a little bit of review. Because sometimes, like we do in life, we can get so focused on what's right in front of us, we lose the big picture of what's taking place. So before we get into Judges chapter 7, I just want to kind of remind you of some things you may or may not know, and we've studied them in the past, but I just want to kind of quickly give you an overview of the nation Israel. And it's the same Israel that we would hear of today. You guys have heard of Israel over in the Middle East. It's the same country. It's the same people. It hasn't changed. This, but but do you, if you remember back when we were studying, or if you've studied the Scriptures, you know that it started with a man named Abraham. The nation Israel began with one man. The same nation Israel that is alive and well and thriving over in the Middle East today, where all the controversy has taken place, began with one man named Abraham. You see, God had come to Abraham, and that's recorded in the book of Genesis for us, and he made him a promise. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the sands of the sea, many of grains, as many of the grains of sand on the beach. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham said, well, God, that's impossible. There's a problem with that. I'm too old. I don't have any kids, and I'm, I'm in my 90s by now. I'm past the childbearing years. My wife is past the childbearing years. We're kind of too old for that. But yet we're told in the scriptures, Abraham believed God. Abraham didn't know how God was going to do it, but he knew that he was going to do it because he said he was going to do it. So Abraham eventually had a son, a miraculous son by the name of Isaac. Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob went on to have 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. That's where the country got its name. Israel means governed by God. That's what the name of the country means. At the point of Jacob, he had 12 sons. The nation of Israel was about 70 people strong. Not a very threatening nation. Not very powerful, just kind of small in number. There was a famine that came across the land, and God led Israel, or Jacob and his sons into Egypt, where they began to grow and they began to multiply, but they also endured some hardship in Egypt. Remember? Maybe you've seen the movies. The, then they cried out to God, Lord, deliver us. And the Lord said, I'll bring a deliverer to you, a guy by the name of Moses. Moses said, Moses is going to be the deliverer. Moses wasn't sure he could do it by himself, asked God for some help, gave him his brother Aaron. You guys know the story, the plagues came upon. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? Not on your life. You're our servants. You're making bricks for us. As a matter of fact, because you have so much free time, I'm going to give you more work. And a series of ten plagues followed in the book of Exodus, which is what we read about in the beginning of the book of Exodus. After these ten plagues, finally Pharaoh had enough at the death of his firstborn son, the death of every firstborn son, every firstborn livestock, every firstborn would die across the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh came to Moses and said, get out. 
Go. Take your people and just go. We're tired of you here. When they left Egypt, we're told that group of 70 people had spent 400 years or 440 years in the land of Egypt, and now they leave, leave Egypt 440 years later, approximately, scholars would suggest, two to three million people strong. God had done an incredible work. He had birthed a nation with inside a nation. They were birthed with, with the protection of Egypt, but when it came time to deliver them, they were delivered by Moses. Moses was the deliverer delivered them out of Egypt. And where did they go? They went to the wilderness, right? And they wandered in the wilderness. And they came to Mount Sinai first, and God said, I'm going to give you the law. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. You guys know the story. The law comes down. People are given the law of Moses. They were supposed to spend just over two years in the wilderness. They come right to the threshold of this land that God was going to give them. It was called the promised land. My people, I've planted them. I've grown them. I've delivered them. Now I'm going to give them the promised land. But there was a problem because the people, the nation Israel, had doubted God. They didn't believe that God was going to really give them the land. See, what they did is they sent a couple of spies into the land. They sent 12 spies into the land. And 10 of the spies came back, and you know what their report was? (gasps) There's scary people in the land. There's giants in the land. Oh, it's a good land. There's good food, but we're scared. They're going to overcome us. They're they're more prepared for battle. But two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb. They said, look, if God's given us the land, let's go take it. If God's on our side, who can be against us? But the nation Israel as a whole said, we're not going. We're not going. We're 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 not going to trust God and take that step. And they turned away. After they realized they had done wrong, they tried to go back, but it was too late. So God said to the nation Israel, every single one of you over the age of 20 years old will perish in the wilderness. You'll die. You're going to die walking around the wilderness for the next 38 years or 40 years total. You're going to die. And you know that's exactly what happened. Over the next 38 years from that point on, every man 20 years older and older passed away, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. At the end of that 38 years, they found themselves again camped right at the entrance to the promised land. Only this time Moses was getting pretty old. And the Lord showed Moses Joshua was going to be the one that leads him into the promised land. Joshua, or Yahshua, is where we get our, our name Jesus from. That's what it means, Jesus. Joshua was going to lead him into the promised land. Moses passes away. Joshua leads the nation Israel into this promised land, to the land of Canaan. The first battles they encounter, they, they, the battle of Jericho, they're winning their battles. God is providing for them, but he told them to do something. He told him to do something. He said, listen, when you guys get in the promised land, you got to do something. It's going to be for your own good. I need you to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Don't leave any of the people around. Get rid of them, because if you don't, they're going to turn you against me. They're going to bring you against me. So they begin driving out the inhabitants of the land. They begin taking over the promised land. They have great success as they come into the land of Canaan. They begin to divide up the land. Because remember I told you the 12 tribes of Jacob or the 12 tribes of Israel came from the 12 12 sons of Jacob. They begin dividing up this area of land. But there was a problem. They didn't do what God had told them to do. God had said, get rid of the inhabitants of the land. Otherwise, they're going to turn you toward their gods. They're going to turn you away from me. And before you know it, you'll be leaving me and you'll be worshiping with them. You'll be doing what they do in Canaan. Well, that's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel after the death of Joshua. You see, Joshua lived to be a ripe old age. 
passed away. And then we come into this period known as the Judges. And that's where we're studying at tonight and where we've been studying in the Judges. This period of Judges is this period of, in Israel's history where they follow God, then they stop following God. They follow God, then they stop following God. They're following God, then they stop following God. That might be, sound like some people you know around your neighborhood. That might be some people in church sometimes. Well, I follow God sometimes, but then I stop following God. That's exactly what the nation of Israel is going through. You see, what's sidetracking them, what's derailing them, are the very people of the world or the people of Canaan they forgot or they refused to drive out. The very thing that's pulling them away from the Lord are the things of the world. You see, they find themselves immersed in a culture that is very sinful and very worldly, just like we do today just like we do today. So what you have from the outside looking in, if you were to look at the nation of Israel, you know what you would say? You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. That's the same thing people say about people in church. You're a bunch of hypocrites. I know who you really are. I know where you really came from. Because they're following and they're not, and they're following and they're not. There's this intermixing that's taking place. And Remember the nation of Israel, the, the word Israel means governed by God. It means that we're not given to the things of the world. We're supposed to be letting God lead us. The, the, the nation is supposed to be under the control, under the leadership of God, not being influenced by the worldly things. And it's such a clear picture, a clear parallel of Christianity or, or, or the church today that we see. Following God, falling back. Following God, falling back. Tonight, as we pick up, we're going to continue with our study of Gideon. Gideon is another judge. What has taken place several times, the nation of Israel has followed God. Then they've stopped following God. They've began worshiping the Baals and the things of the world. And the Lord has turned them over, literally, to the hand of somebody. And the Lord turns them over means I'm going to put you back into bondage. I'm going to put you back under the thumb of somebody. I'm going to put you back under the control of somebody. Not because God's mean, but because he wants to get their heart back to him. And we found that. if Back in, just for review, real quick... Back in Judges chapter 6, we can read it in verse 1, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Midian prevailed against Israel. And what we see take place in that beginning of chapter, I just want to summarize it for you. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian because they stopped following God. God says, if you're not going to follow me, I'm going to deliver you into the hand of your enemies. Not because I want to be mean, because I want you to see how hard it is without me. I want to draw you back to me, is what he's saying. I'm going to let you endure some hardship. I'm going to let you endure some pain because I want to bring you back. You see, I've said it, I said it last time, I've said it before. God's more concerned with our eternal destination than he is with our comfort here on this earth. It's much better for us to endure hardship here, endure health problems, endure pain, endure suffering, endure relational problems, endure the difficulties of the earth and be secure eternally than it is to simply just skate through life with no problems and no issues and no big deal. I'd much rather be eternally secure in, for eternity with him than just having a good life here or having a comfortable life here. So what we see taking place is the Lord turns him over to the, to the Midianites again. And what the Midianites were doing is every time, there, there was about 125,000 of them, they were kind of a traveling group, and every time the nation Israel would plant they were, they were farmers. They would grow their food. Every time they would plant, they would tend to the fields. They would grow the fields. They would harvest the fields. And then right at harvest time, the Midianites would come and take all their food. After they'd done all the work, all the labor, and also the Midianites come and they take all their food. Finally, after seven years of this, Israel has enough. They, we, read, we, we read it here. They cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. 
They took all their food. Verse 7 tells us, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord raises up a prophet for him. The Lord raises up Gideon. Now, if you remember from our study last week, Gideon, he's not the leader you would expect him to be. Gideon was a little bit, uh, well, let's say Gideon was unqualified. Gideon was a little, uh, he had a confidence problem. Remember what he was doing when he was called by God? He was threshing wheat at the wine press. Now, that means nothing to us in our society, but remember, where you threshed wheat was on top of the mountain. Where you pressed wines was on the bottom of the mountain. The grapes grew on the side of the mountain. Do you want to wheel the grapes up the hill or down the hill? You want to wheel the grapes down the hill. Why isn't he threshing wheat on top of the mountain? Because the enemies will come get him. He's hiding. He's scared. He's knocking at his knees, scared to death. So he's hiding down at the, at the wine press, threshing wheat so he can get some food in this famine land. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Gideon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to deliver Israel. And Gideon's response is, me? You're going to use me? As he's standing there knocking his knees, hiding behind the tree, threshing, his, uh, threshing the wheat. You're going to use me, Lord? Wait a minute, you don't understand. I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. We're farmers. You need to go get somebody from the tribe of Ephraim. Some of the, go get some of the warriors. You're, you're going to use me? Not only is my tribe Manasseh kind of low on the totem pole, Lord, my family, my father's house, well, we're kind of low within the tribe of Manasseh. And in my father's house, I'm like at the bottom. I'm like the least likely one ever that the Lord would use. I'm like, Lord, in, in the hierarchy of, of prophets, in the hierarchy of judges, I, I, I'm nobody. He's doubting what God's saying. He's doubting what God's going to do with him. And remember what he, the Lord comes to him and he says, he's gonna, he, he calls him, remember we talked about it last week, you're a mighty man of valor, Gideon. And we talked about the humor in that because here he is threshing wheat at the wine press and the angel of the Lord's calling him a mighty man of valor. And we talked about how the Lord sees what he's going to become, not what he is at that moment. And Gideon goes on and he, he, you know, the Lord tells him what to do. And the, Gideon goes, well, I don't know, Lord. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a couple of fleeces. I'm going to test what you're saying. And Gideon says, I'll tell you what, Lord, if you really want me to lead Israel, if you want me to do this, if you want me to do this battle thing, if you're sure of this, well, I'm going to put out a fleece in the middle of the night. And, and tomorrow morning when I get up, if all the ground is wet from dew and the fleece is dry, then I'll know I heard from you, God. And he does it. And he wakes up the next morning, and all the ground is wet, and the fleece is dry. He goes, wait, wait, wait hold on, Lord. I, okay, I'm not quite convinced. Let's do it the other way around. Let's switch it. All right, I want all the ground dry and the fleece wet. So he wakes up the next morning, and that's exactly what he gets. And he calls to action. He calls the people, and he gathers the people. He blows the trumpet of war. The people gather around. We're going to war. And we're going to be told tonight that he's got 32,000 men that are getting ready to go to battle. 32,000 men are getting ready to go to battle. They're lining up on the hillside. Gideon is our leader. That's where we're at tonight. That's where we pick up in our story. Look at chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, they rose early, and they encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Moray, the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give to the Midianite, to give the Midianites in their hand, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So let me get your attention. They're camped out on the side, they're getting ready to go to battle. Now, just, just to kind of give the numbers game for you, okay? 
we know that the Israelites have 32,000 men, okay? The other side, well, they have roughly 125,000 men. So it's roughly a ratio of four to one right now. 120,000 between 125,000, somewhere in that range. It's a four to one ratio. And then God says to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me. Now, what do you think Gideon's going? What, are you crazy? They only have 32,000 people. Do you see all the people over there? How are we going to go to battle? And God says, no, no, no. I want to show you something, Gideon. I want to do something that you can't do yourself. If I leave these 32,000 men with you, Gideon, there's a chance that when, when I give you the victory in the battle, there's a chance that they're going to take credit for, them, for themselves. They're, going to, they're not going to give credit to God. They're going to give credit to themselves. They're going to talk about what great warriors they are, how well prepared they are. They're going to say what a great leader they had. They're going to come up with all these great things that they did. And God says, I don't want that to happen. I know you guys have a tendency of turning your back on me. I don't want that to happen. I want to put you in a situation where you'll give glory to God. And look what he says. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. Notice this. Victories won by faith bring glory to God. A victory in your life won by faith will cause you to give glory to God. I wrote this down. I thought it was a cool saying. If you can explain it, God didn't do it. If I can explain what I did or what I didn't do on my own ability, my own power, then it's not coming from the Lord. It's not a miraculous thing. It's just something I did. You don't don't praise the Lord that you're able to tie your shoes in the morning when you wake up. You just do that. You don't need to go, Lord, could you please help me tie my shoes this morning? Well, that would be dumb, wouldn't it? We can all handle the fact of tying our shoes, or at least most of us can. So we don't need to ask the Lord for help on tying our shoes. But when you step out of that realm or that range where you're comfortable with doing something, where what you're doing doesn't make sense, but you know it's something that God's called you to do, that's where God gets the glory. That's where you look and go, I can't do that. I can remember the first time I ever taught a Bible study. It was bad. Maybe you think it still is bad. I don't know. (laughs) But it was worse than it is now. I mean, it was really bad. You know? But I'll share this story. I was teaching, I think it was my second or third Bible study. And I was down in Florida, and I was teaching. And I was about 20 minutes into this study. And I was supposed to teach for about 45 minutes. That's kind of my target. I was about 20 minutes in. And I looked out, and there was a couple, not you guys. You guys weren't there. There was a couple there, and the, the guy was like this. And the woman was looking at me like, and, and, and some women are very expressive with their face, and some women are very kind of stoic with their face. But she was looking at me like, what are you talking about? Just like, and I, and I looked at that, and I got freaked out. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So finally, I said, I said you know what, I'm done. I said, I'm done. Hey, if anybody wants to get saved tonight, you just come on down. Bible study's over. Prayer's done. And, you know, the worship team's like back there, you know, doing whatever. I said, and they're like, whoa, he's calling us up now. I can't believe he's calling us up already. They come running up and they start playing. We don't have a worship team. But they start running up, start playing worship and everything. And all of a sudden, I thought, man, I just got to get out of here. I'm I'm never doing this again. And all of a sudden, I see some, one, one young lady walking up the middle aisle. And I, I, I was getting ready to leave, and so that was it. I was done. And she walked up, and I started talking to her. And she said, you know, that thing you said, and she started telling me what I said. I didn't remember saying it. And she says, I need, I need Christ in my life. 
And I began to pray with her, and she accepted Christ, and, and we got all done, and the service ended. And everyone said to me, why did you end so early? And I said, well, I, 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 I was terrible. And they go, no, it wasn't terrible. You were doing great. And I said, well, wow. I mean, I just, I was like, wow, I, I can't believe it. I, I felt like I was bombing. I, this guy was sleeping. Oh, don't worry about him. Everybody else was loving it. And I, got, I was watching the guy snore, and it was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I realized something that, you know, God was calling me to do something. And that if I was going to do it in my own strength, I would be worried about what I thought the results would be. But if I would do it in his strength, he would, he would handle that. He would take care of all those results for me. And that's how I kind of got started in my teaching. But Gideon here, he's, you know, the Lord's making it very clear to him, Gideon, I don't want you guys taking credit for this victory in your life. I don't want you guys taking, and I want you to understand that because he, the way I just applied it in the, in the story I just told you, I only teach the Bible because it's what God's called me to do. I, only do. I can only do it because the Holy Spirit empowers me to do it. I don't like public speaking. I'm afraid to get in front of people. I still don't like it unless it's to teach the scripture. Other than that, it doesn't bother me. But to get generally in front of a group of people, it makes me nervous. But God's called me to teach, so I teach. And I'll continue to do that. Now, here's what I want you to remember. He says to them, I don't want you to claim glory. I don't want Israel to claim glory for itself because it's against me. When we claim glory for ourselves, we're actually claiming it against God. When God does something in your life incredible, or even every day, do you give him the glory or do we want to take the glory? When you do something good at work and you feel like you solved a problem that nobody could solve or you feel like, hey, I've got some insight or I've got some wisdom or I've got something that I've done special and I'm being recognized for what I've done, whether it be in school or at work. Does your mind go, thank you, Lord? Praise the Lord. Or do you go, yeah, I'm pretty good. Not bad. I'm all right. I'd pick me too, you know? No, he's saying, I don't want you guys to take the glory for this. So I'm going to make the odds even worse. Look what he does. Verse 3, he says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So God says to Gideon, I don't want there to be any question that this is from me. So I want you to gather the 32,000 men together, And I want you to tell them that if you're scared, if you're afraid, we'll just go on home. And Gideon's probably thinking, yeah, I'm going to be number one out of here. (laughs) So he gathers 32,000 people together. And by the way, that was part of the law in the Old Testament back in Deuteronomy. I think it was chapter 8. He said if you were fearful, you weren't supposed to go into battle. So he gathers them together and he says, all right, if you're afraid, if you don't want to go into battle against the Midianites... Well, go on home. Now, can you picture his surprise when two-thirds of his warriors packed up their stuff and headed for the house? He's left with 10,000 men. 10,000 men. Now, he's doing the math. 10,000 men, they have 120,000, and we're told that it was like, it was like sand, grains of sand on the beach. There were so many. They were, Lord, what are you doing here is what he must have been saying. And then the Lord says... In verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. What? Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. 
Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, then he shall not go with you. Wait a minute, Lord, you got to just picture Gideon's heart. He was already scared to start, but he's being obedient. He's stepping out in faith. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. The Lord says, all right, if they're afraid, send them home. 22,000 people, gone. All right, and the Lord looks over and says, nope, Gideon, there's still too many. What are you, crazy, God? How are we going to do this? I'll tell you what we're going to do, Gideon. Bring all the people down to the water. Just gather them all together, bring them down to the water. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to test them there for you. And I'm going to go through them. I'm going to sift through them for you, if you will. And I'll let you know who you're supposed to bring and who you're not. Now Gideon has a choice to make. Is he obedient or disobedient? Does he look at what the world would say? Because any battle plan, any any battle general, anybody in the military would go, those odds aren't very good. Hand-to-hand combat, 10,000 versus over 100,000 is at least 120,000, 12 to 1. We don't stand a very good chance. Maybe we should just wrap this whole thing up and call it a day. Maybe I should go back to threshing wheat by the wine press and not worry about this anymore. But he doesn't do that. Look what he does. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. Mark a note in your Bible if you take notes. Gideon was obedient. Oftentimes when the Lord is doing something in your life, it takes one step of obedience before you see the next step made out to you, made available to you. Had Gideon not said to the people, all right, you group of 10,000 men, come on down to the water and get a drink, he would have not got to see the rest of the story. He would have went home with the rest of them. He would have missed out on the miracle. He would have missed out on what God was doing. But he wasn't. He was obedient. Now, just the size of this is amazing. He brings them down to the water. The Lord says, I'm going to test them. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. The number of those who lapped putting their heads to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By 300 men who lapped, I will save you, save you and deliver the Midianites in your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place, or every man can go home. He just whittled the number down from 10,000 to, did you catch it? 300. 300. And this is how he did it. He said, Gideon, bring the guys down. Let them get a drink of water. If they get down on their belly, if they get down on their hands and knees and and they drink the water, they lap the water like a dog. You guys have dogs at home? You know how the dog drinks out of a bowl? It's the same thing. They get down into the water. What does a dog do? He puts his whole head in the water, right? Big dog, big mess at a watering bowl, right? That's what happens. And he gets down and he shakes and all the water goes everywhere. Big dog, big mess. If they get down into the water, we don't want them. But if they reach down in the water with their hand and they bring the hand to their mouth, that's what we want. That's what we're looking for. Now, I will tell you, commentators and Bible scholars have debated the reason for this. And the, the, they've gone back and forth for years on saying, what's going on? Some scholars suggest that the guys that laid down and got into the water, well, they weren't ready for battle. They were becoming comfortable, so we needed to get rid of them. They were, they were concerned with the comforts of the world. And the guys that were kneeling down and bringing the water to their face were still able to look around. Well, that may or may not be true. The enemy was miles away. They, they were aware of that. Some scholars suggest that 
the guys that got down in the water um, were like a dog, and a dog was repulsive to Israel. You didn't want to be compared to a dog. You didn't want to be, be like a dog. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't want anything to do with a dog, so that's why they were sent away. And some scholars suggest that getting down into the water was a, was a sign of comfort, where they, began, they, they got down into the water, and they kind of cooled themselves off, and they kind of just laid there like in a lazy, you know, lazy river, and they just kind of relaxed. And it was, we, don't want, we don't want guys going to battle that are going to be concerned with the comfort of themselves or the comfort of their world, you know, and there, there's, there's others and there's, there's other reasons why they did this. I don't think we really matters. I don't think it really, ca- I don't think we really care. I think the miracle that's taken place is God said, listen, let's not lose sight of the big picture. You have an enemy. I want to defeat your enemy and I'm going to do it with 300 people so that I get the victory. And we can get stuck reading into scripture sometimes too much like that. There could be some parallels made there and it's, it's possible. But let's, let's keep the big picture in focus. So he whittles it down to 300 people. And then he says, uh, verse 8, So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and they, and they sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and he retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Now, please, that same night, that same day, Gideon watched his army go from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300, and all of a sudden, the Lord comes to him in the night and says, Gideon, grab your people and let's go. Let's go. But then something strange happens in verse 9. It says it happened, I'm sorry, in verse 10. But if you are afraid... Now, why do you think that's in there? Because I think there was a conversation between Gideon and God that said, Gideon said, you know what, Lord? I don't know if you're with it or not, but we only have 300 people. The reason it says if you're afraid is because he was afraid. Gideon was doubting what was taking place. He didn't think this was going to work out very well for him. So God, and I like this about the Lord, the Lord says, if you have doubts, if you have doubts, I'll take care of them. It's okay. It's okay. You have doubts. Here's what I get the question. I, I, get, I, I talk to people about the Lord as much as I can, and sometimes people have a lot of doubts about God. I think that's good. I think it's okay to doubt and to wonder and to question. But I think the heart has to be, I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. And Gideon's heart here is, Lord, I need to know the truth. I know we did the fleece thing. I know I cast down the altar of Baal back in chapter uh, uh, 6, and I know my dad stuck behind me, and I know I threw out the fleece thing, and I know I blew the trumpet, I know all the men came, and I know you've whittled them down, but Lord, I still have some questions here. I still have some unanswered things I need to work out between you and me. There's some things I'm not really understanding. The Lord says, that's okay, Gideon. That's okay. And Lord, I'm afraid. We only have 300 people, and they have all those people. And by the way, they had camels. That's funny, right? Believe it or not, history would tell us that the, this group of people were the first one to domesticate camels and use them in war. You think, well, that's not, you know. The last group we saw them go against had, had iron chariots, and God made it rain, and they got stuck in the mud. Now, this group has camels. Modern warfare at its finest, right? But can you imagine fighting against a group of people on camels if you didn't have a camel? The odds would be stacked against you. It would be entertaining to watch, wouldn't it? They've got camels, Lord. I, I really... I got doubts. I got questions. I really need to know that. And I love God's heart. God says, Gideon, if you're afraid, because he knows that he is, he says, if you're afraid, I want to reassure you. 
You see, Gideon wasn't trying to get out of going to battle. Gideon was, Gideon was trying to discern God's will. Gideon wasn't trying to get out of doing what God wanted him to do. He just wanted to be sure it was what God wanted him to do. And I think that there's never a problem with that. Gideon is seeking the truth. God, did you really say? Is this really what you mean? Go down. Go down to the, and, and go down. Look what he says. If you're afraid in verse 10, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Now the camp that he's going is to the Midianites. And you shall hear what they say. So Gideon and his servant Pura, so they sneak down to the camp. Afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down and against the camp. So God says to, let me just get your attention real quick before we go in there. God says, listen, Gideon, if you're afraid, go down with Pura, your servant. Go down, sneak down to the camp of the enemy and listen to what they're talking about. This is, now, if, if, the, if the, let's see, we're, looking, we're working on if the, f- say, six or 700 years at this point of the nation of Israel is not impressive that God's done all this in a timely manner. Now God does it daily. He says, listen, go down, and you're going to run across some people from the other side, and you're going to overhear their conversation, and you're going to be strengthened by what you hear. So Gideon says, okay, I'll go. Verse 11, the end, he says, then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were with the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east were lying in the valley and they're as numerous as locusts and their camels, see I told you they had camels, their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion and he said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. And his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Now let me get your attention. Pura and Gideon sneak down to the enemy. They hear this conversation. One man says, I had a dream. Oh yeah, what was your dream about? Well, I dreamt a loaf of barley bread fell out of the sky and it hit one of our tents and it knocked it over. And then the guy on the other side goes, yeah, that must be the sword. That must be God giving us over to, the, to Gideon and to Israel. Is that not weird? I mean, is it just me or do you look at it and go, that's strange. That's weird. But what's interesting is God said it would happen. God said, Gideon, go here and I'll encourage you. If God wants to use a fallen tent and a barley bread and some guy interpreting a dream that who knows what, because don't you have some weird dreams? We can all have some kind of weird dreams sometimes. And don't read into them, please. Don't, don't, don't go too far into your dreams. But God's using this crazy situation. Maybe they were drunk. I don't know. He's using this crazy situation between these two guys. Gideon overhears it. and He says, wow, it really is from the Lord. Look what he says. Verse uh, 15, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and interpretation that he worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Gideon had doubts about what God was telling him to do. He goes down what, exactly what God told him to do. He hears the dream and it brings him to a place of worship before the Lord. It brings his heart to a place of worship. It's like he says, Lord, now, now I know I can trust your word. Now I know what you mean. And I can look at Gideon and say, Gideon, you should have trusted from way back when. The angel of the Lord told you you were a mighty man of valor when you were hiding at the wine press. But Gideon comes to the place right now 
He had questions of God. God, I got some questions for you. I'm not sure this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Or says, that's okay. I'll answer your question. You keep seeking me with truth. For you keep seeking the truth. I'll answer your questions. The Lord not only answers his questions, he brings them right where he needs them, which is in a place of worship. The best leaders are worshipers. The very best leaders in anything. I don't care whether it's in church or whether it's in your jobs or your families. Be a worshiper. You can't be a worshiper until you're actually impressed with God. And you can't be impressed with God until you really understand what he's done. I've just given you an overview tonight of what's taken place within one small period of the judges and a quick overview of what he's done in the nation Israel. But it's much greater than that. The Bible contains much more information than that about the Lord. So Gideon finds himself in a place of worship before the Lord. Lord, now I know. And then look what he does after he's worshiped, after he's received the truth he was looking for. He returns to the camp of Israel and says, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. So let's do math here. 300 men, three companies, how many, how many per group? 100, right? Very good. I knew you guys were smart. 100 people per group. Divides 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside their pitchers. Let me get your attention. All right, guys, we're going to battle. Bring your trumpet, your torch, and your pitcher. Like a, that's like a water pitcher, not like a, not taking a picture. Bring your trumpets, your torches, and your pitchers. These 300 guys, what do you think they're thinking? What about my sword? They got camels, remember? <laughs> we got pitchers and trumpets, and this doesn't make any sense. Sometimes what God does may not make sense to us. But we have to remember, he's the one in control. So the Lord gives Gideon a battle plan. And it doesn't make sense worldly, which is, might be exactly why it works. Thinking outside the box sometimes is a good thing. So he tells him, he says to him, verse 17, Look at me and do likewise. That means do what I do. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, that's the edge of the camp of the enemy, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet... I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came out to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted watch. Hold on. Do you got the battle plan? This is what Gideon says. All right, guys, I'm going to split us up into groups of a hundred. You guys go on this side. You guys go on this side. You guys go on this side. So we'll have three sides covered at least, right? And here's what, you just follow my lead. When I get there, when I, when, I, when I blow my trumpet, I want you to blow your trumpet too. Just blow your trumpet, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to break the pitchers, because right now the torches are likely hidden underneath the pictures, underneath the pitchers. So when we break the pitchers, they're going to, we're going to wake them up, it's the middle of the night, and we're going we're to surprise, it's a sneak attack. But Gideon, they have 125,000 men, we only have 300 pitchers and trumpets. It's okay, guys, just follow me. Do what I do. Let's see what happens. And when you get there, say the Lord, they say this, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Yell it real loud, guys. Verse 21. Every man stood in his place all around the camp. The whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia. 
toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize them, seize from them the watering places, that's the wells, as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Did I skip a verse in there? Where did I skip? I started in verse 22. Let's just back to verse 19 real quick. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outposts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands, the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So did you guys catch the battle? They surrounded the camp. They broke the pitchers. They cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Got to throw that in there too. And of Gideon. And they yelled. They blew their trumpets. So what's taking place in the camp? God confuses them. God brings them the victory. They wake up. They're not trying to figure out what's going on. I'm sure, can you, if they had that many camels as they think, what do you think the camels did when they woke up? I think of a camel stampede taking place. You know, people getting run over, camels running over everything. Running over tents and all kinds of things. People, we read, turning their swords against one another. People are, you know, they're, they're, they're fleeing, they're running. It's just, this, it's just this chaos that takes place in the middle of the night. You ever been woke up in the middle of the night? What do you feel like? You're kind of groggy. You're trying to figure out what's going on. And you're, you're like, what? That's what's taking place. And all they see is that they're surrounded by torches. And they hear trumpets blowing. And they run. And they run. And then the two princes get caught. And then Gideon, as they're in pursuit, because their, their methods of war were much more archaic than ours are today. As they're in pursuit, Gideon sends word back to the 22,000 that left and said, hey, come on with us. Okay, we're not scared anymore. We're winning. You know, We'll join the battle. And now they're, now they're chasing them. And they send word back to Ephraim. Ephraim was the battle. They were known for their war. Ephraim comes out, the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon sent messengers in verse 24 throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and, ta- and seize their wells. So message gets back to the Ephraimites. Hey, th- th- come get the wells. They're, 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 we've got them. They're on the run. This is our chance to get them. God's given them to us. And so here comes Ephraim. They seize the wells. And then we're just going to do the first section of verse 8, chapter 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they, rep- they reprimanded him sharply. Did, did you, do, you, do you catch the tone? Gideon, you're from the tribe of Manasseh. We're the tribe of Ephraim. Why didn't you call us and tell us you were going to battle? You should have called us and told us. We're the ones that should be winning this battle. But it's a good thing, it's a good thing Gideon didn't call them. Because he wasn't supposed to call them. Because had, the, had they been there, the tribe of Ephraim been there, who would have got the credit? The battle tribe, the war tribe. But look at Gideon's answer. Look what Gideon says. Verse 2, so Gideon, or so he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? That's, that's 
Gideon's family, Abizar. That's, his, that's where his family comes from. So here's what he says. Talk about political correctness. Talk about smoothing things over. To us, that statement doesn't mean a lot, but here's what he's saying. He says to them, first thing he says is, what have I done in comparison to you? I'm nobody. I'm Gideon. I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. I'm from the, from the house of Joash. I'm the lowest in my father's house. You guys, you guys are great. You guys are awesome. Now, who's the awesome one here? Gideon is. Who just won the battle for him? Gideon did. But look what he says. You guys, man, you guys get all the credit. Matter of fact, the gleanings, that's just like what's left over in your fields is greater than what we harvest. Do you see what he's saying? He's turned around and he's given credit for the victory because the Ephraimites are the one that captured the two princes, Zeb and Orlub. He's given credit to the victory for them. To them. Who are we among you? You guys have accomplished this. How quick are we to take credit for things in our lives? I wrote down a statement. It says this. There is no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. There is no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. That was Ronald Reagan who said that, by the way. But what it means is Gideon accomplished great things for the Lord that day, but he wasn't concerned about giving the credit to himself. He smoothed things out with his brothers, Ephraim. How many fights have occurred in, in a family, within a family because of pride? Because if somebody wants credit, someone deserves something? Gideon says, no, no, you want it, you got it, go. You guys are so much greater than us. You're so much better than us. Gideon was the one being used by God. Gideon was the one who won that battle. Gideon was the one who led them into victory, 300 men against 120,000. Gideon was the one who called them and said, hey, come get the wells. Gideon was the one who said, you know what? You guys can have the credit for it. You're so much greater than I. You're so much better than I am. And look what they said. Gideon goes on. He says, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian and Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Their anger toward him subsided. He told them how great they were. You guys are doing good. Could have been a family feud. Could have been a battle between two tribes. But Gideon yields and says, you know what, you guys are great. How many fights within our own life, whether it be at work, whether it be home, whether it be at school, whether it be with our neighbors, could we end if we could just just humble ourselves a little bit. Say something good about them. Say something the deserving about them. But we don't do that sometimes. I'm right. And I'm going to prove that I'm right. I don't care what they think. I'm going to show everybody I'm right. It's not what Gideon did. I like Gideon. I like him. I like him because he was questioning the Lord. I was like him because he was saying, Lord, what do I do? I need to be sure. I like him when he faced the confrontation of his brother tribe, his fellow, fellow Israelites. He says, you guys are great. I'm just following the Lord. What a, what a servant's heart. I said, you guys are great. I don't care who gets the credit. I don't care who gets the credit for what God's doing. I just want God to get the credit. If you think you need to do it, then great. I just, Gideon learned his lesson. God, you get the credit. 300 men, 125,000, you win. Well, we don't have time to finish the rest of Gideon tonight. 
because we're out of time. So you'll have to come back next week to find out what Gideon does from there. Because the battle's not over, they're still in pursuit. And there's still some enemies along the way that he'll meet. So we'll pick up with the battle of Gideon next week. Father, we thank you for your word, for your faithfulness. Lord, as we just quickly look tonight at how the nation Israel was formed, and they're still in existence. Lord, we look tonight at this one small battle, yet your hand was all over it. Father, may we not doubt that your hand is all over our lives, just like it was in this scripture. That is, just as Gideon went down to the enemy's camp and overheard the conversation, that that wasn't a coincidence, Lord. That the coincidence that the things that happen in our lives are not coincidences either. But Lord, may we be more like Gideon. May we have a desire to know the truth about you and the truth that you have for us and the truth of what you want us to do. May we seek that out as Gideon did. May we search it out. May we come before you, Lord, and ask those questions. Even if we're afraid like Gideon was. Father, I thank you that you're more concerned with our eternal destination than you are with our comfort here on this earth. Oh, that can be difficult at times. I thank you that you care for us so deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.